Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today, we're gonna to talk about an unfortunate disease that is really taking over this country, which is cancer. We have 1,600 people dying, die, not coming down with and being diagnosed, really diagnosed, but dying, dead, today and every day in the United States alone. It's 8,100 people a day in China. And I know they're a bigger country than us, but proportionally, that's still higher. So there's a lot of people coming down with this. And there's no question that you or someone you know or love is affected by this. So that's why the topic of this uh, interview is so important. And I, like most of you, know, have, know many individuals who have cancer. And, you know, I, I I obviously can't consult with them, and that's not my full-time job. I haven't seen patients for 10 years, so I've been referring them to clinics, and I'm realizing there's a lot of good clinics out there, but what is the strategy overall? So, and I'm, I'm interviewing today Dr. Nasha Winters, who's a naturopathic physician who specializes in cancer treatment, and she has, I'll let her describe it in more detail, but she has basically treated cancer patients for now, but has evolved to a more efficient model. So she's actually training the clinicians and consulting with the clinicians who are doing the, doing the patients, which I think is a far more efficient strategy. So anyway, she's, I've been very impressed with her work. She definitely is highly embracing the ketogenic diet and integrates that as, a, as an enormous um, strategic tool in the therapeutic planning, but also as a... Uh, embraces many other strategies that really are difficult to know, even if you study this thing full time. And I've read a lot of books on cancer and interviewed a lot of people. And I've, I've actually recently uh, chimed in into one of her recent consultations and was so impressed with her ability to uh, really target things to a specific cancer that you would be very difficult to, to get. So I'm impressed with her clinical knowledge and thought it would be useful to have her come on and tell you the strategies she's, she's using. And maybe for if you're affected by cancer, you know, you can seek to have your clinician use her as a consultant to fine tune your strategy because fortunately, and I'll let Dr. I'll just finish this introduction quickly, but I'll believe, and I'll certainly will let Dr. Winters uh, discuss her views, but I believe that if you catch them early enough, almost all these cancers are curable. You just got to catch them early and you got to know what you're doing and you got to stay away from strategies that are going to take you backwards, which are the big things. So with all that long introduction, it was a little longer than normal. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. It's an honor to be on your show and to be able to share, you know, as you're saying, it's like we've, we've got to do something about the statistics. We, you know, by the time we're done with this conversation today, we'll have, you know, nearly hit that 1600 mark of people's lives lost to yeah. a disease that can be treated like a manageable chronic illness today. Well, let me counter that. I don't know that we are individually going to be able to change those numbers, but what we can do, because there's such a small minority of people, and we're talking to that minority of people now, who understand health at a deep foundational level, but even when you do, you still need you need a really expert coach to walk through this because you've really damaged your body in a way when you get to cancer. But what we can do, now do out of my mind, is we can help those people who have been leading a healthy lifestyle and just need some help to take it to the next step. But we're not going to make a dent in those 1,600 people. That requires a more, far more strategic and comprehensive overhaul of the entire system because there's so many pernicious factors that are contributing to this. 
True, true. And, and just, you know, on a side note, that is my life's goal is to eventually be able to start to tackle, you know, dive in and even make a tiny little dent in that, in that statistic. But you're right, where we can be effective is with the folks that have already know they've got this going on, mm -hmm. um, are in a position where they're still well enough and motivated enough to explore beyond their standard of care options, because that's often not um, enough, frankly, uh, in today's time. And then also truly, you know, the biggest impact I think we can have, and especially the type of work that you do, is we can really help people look under the hood long before it's a problem, because really the only true cure is prevention. So, you know, we've got sort of layers of this. We've got the folks who don't yet have it or don't yet know they have cancer. We have the folks that are early diagnosed or in a relatively good state of health, whether it's a stage one to a stage four. And then we have some of the folks that are just really damaged from years and years of unsuccessful treatments that have left their, their bodies really um, broken and, and maybe not as responsive to this approach. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so with that, you know, one of the things that I think is uh, very interesting, and you probably hear this all the time, is I can't think of a single time I've met somebody who has been diagnosed with cancer who has not said to me, wow, I, was, I thought I was healthy until I had cancer. Yeah. Or as you say, I was healthy until I had cancer. And I mean, Dr. Mercola, you and I both know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was an impossibility, you know, that, that yeah, yeah. they just didn't know. It's a wake-up call, and cancer, like many other diseases, does not manifest itself, as you well know, until you're, you know, you're 80% of the way there. It's not like the first symptom, you know, is, is cancer. I mean, you've got to really progress well into the disease, but many, frequently, many times for many years, colon cancer is a classic example, before it really manifests. So it doesn't matter how you feel necessarily. I mean, the cancer is a, is a res ipsa loquitur uh, factor is that it, facts speak for themselves. You didn't in some way or shape or form were not leading a healthy lifestyle. Exactly, exactly. Or, or just a simple fact of living on the planet today, um, no matter how much you try, we are being exposed to many things that we don't see, that we're not aware of, that are definitely damaging our container, you know, in a, in a way that our cells are having a harder and more and more difficult time increasingly over these years to re repair, respond and repair the way it should. And so I think that that's one of the strategies that I'm helping uh, physicians understand um, because our medical system is not geared towards prevention. I mean, my gosh, not even close to that. So we are very much waiting for a house to be engulfed in flames before we decide to spit a little bit of water on it, right? So my strategy has always been test, assess, address, and then adjust accordingly and repeat as often as needed because okay. what, yeah. Why don't we start there? Because that, that was one of the impressive uh, points that you mentioned in the consultation that I listened in on with is that you have this testing strategy. And I think there was four tests, I believe that you recommend everyone. In fact, you require them before your initial consultation with them to have done. And uh, there, there are markers of how advanced the cancer is and how well they're doing uh, as you're progressing through with the treatment. So why don't you review those tests? Sure. And you know, one thing in your latest book, I really love that the last sort of section or chapter of your book is specific to testing, to sort of mm -hmm. be able to see where you are before you start the keto fast process, where you are in the process and after and along the way. This is no different when we're looking at a chronic illness. And with cancer in particular, 
there are a ton of tests, as you're also well aware, because I have this client that we consulted on together, um, doing some pretty provocative testing above and beyond, but it was thanks to those basic five tests that gave me the clue as to what else was needed to really assess their terrain. Mm -hmm. So the first test is simple and inexpensive. It's a blood chem chemistry. It's a CBC with differential, which is a complete blood count. That includes things like our white blood cells, our red blood cells, hemoglobin, hematocrit, our, um, our platelets. Most importantly of that test that is often overlooked, especially in the realm of cancer and immunotherapy, are your neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. This is actually prognostic for all um, overall survival. Um, if you actually go into a PubMed search, you will see that a neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio is, is sort of like the, the end-all be-all of whether or not you're going to make it or not through any disease, chronic disease process. And even more interestingly, now that we're putting so much money into immunotherapies and um, having only about a 20% response rate, most of that reason why we don't have a better outcome is simply because of that neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. When our neutrophils are too elevated and our lymphocytes are too low, we don't have a normal functioning immune system. And we can actually tilt the teeter-totter of our immune system into a dangerous place of overreactivity to some of these you know, new innovative immune therapies and oncology. So for a $12 paid out of your pocket walk-in lab test, you get a really good sense of where your immune system lies. Also on that- what, what, yeah. Before you skip to the next one, what, what are the ranges of considered to be healthy in that? And what, what is your ideal optimum? Sure, so overall you want what's considered a two to one ratio or better of the neutrophil cells to the lymphocytes. So that might be 50 to 25, um, you know, 50 neutrophils to 25. That's kind of your sweet zone. If you go much higher than that, that, that bigger divide between neutrophils and lymphocytes is a problem. Or if you end up what we call a switched NLR, where the lymphocytes are more elevated than the neutrophils, that's often when we're looking at a lot of blood dyscrasias and blood cancers that are not uncommon after standard of care therapy. So this is a really simple, effective way to just even assess if the immune system is on track or not. Um, the other thing we overlook often is white blood cells. You know, we kind of want them in the sweet spot of five to seven. And anything lower in that, which is very common in conventional therapies, is making it challenging to, to have the body, you know, recognize, respond, and remember anything that it's being faced with in, um, you know, as far as pathologies go. And then the other piece that we often forget about is things like the hemoglobin. If the hemoglobin is low and you happen to be someone who's monitoring your ketones or your blood counts, your, your um, hemoglobin A1C, you're going to get some erroneous numbers because you have to have enough hemoglobin to actually get a positive, you know, a, a, a true result. So there's simple little tricks that we can use with a basic CBC just to see how somebody's immune system is during treatment, after treatment, prior to treatment, and it's worth running on your own and paying cash for just to look under the hood on sure. a page. And, and the white blood cell optimum was 5.7, you said? Yeah, 5 to 7. In, in the, oh, 5 in to 7. 5 to 7, correct, exactly. And, and, uh, and, a, and a neutrophil is a type of white blood cell, but... but on the CBC results, it'll say WBC for white blood cell count, which includes all of the, the white blood cells. Exactly. And another overlooked one on a basic CBC is things like our platelets. When our platelets are elevated above 250, that is also prognostic. And really? What's the sweet spot for platelets? Platelets, 175 to 250. Is really? Our 
Yeah. So 200. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of hitting right in that zone. If we're less than 175, we've got, you know, some issues with how our immune system is functioning and clotting disorders. And if it's above 250, same thing. Oftentimes, elevated platelets can be a good example of a cancerous process. In fact, that's one of the sort of alarms that we'll see in early stage cancers are rising platelet counts. We also often see that that's related to um, like fibrinogen, you know, thick, sticky blood patterns, but also related to viral patterns. So showing us that there might be some co-infections causing some immune dysregulation, which is also very related to sort of the cancering process that's ignored. And again, it's incredible how this simple $12 test can give us a beautiful snapshot of somebody's immune function. Yeah, and you can look at, I mean, I'm sure almost everyone watching this has had a recent CBC done that's done on almost every blood test. I mean, because it's so inexpensive and it provides so much valuable information, including if you're anemic for the most part. So look at them and use these results and see if you have some pre-warning signs that suggest something wrong may be going on. Exactly. it's so much easier to treat it before than it is to treat it once you have it. Nailed it. That's exactly it. And then we, we do, we kind of look at it really in the oncology world in particular. We really only look at this test to make sure that our white blood cell overall count and our neutrophils are high enough for us to be able to give the next dose of chemotherapy or targeted therapy. So that's the only sort of lens that we're looking through through the standard of care oncology world. I talk to oncologists daily, and most of them have never heard about the NLR ratio or the fact that platelets are a prognostic factor for progression of disease or even early warning signs of cancer. It's pretty interesting to me that that that's actually in PubMed, you know, searches. It's easy to go in and take a look for any of those standalone tests to see what they mean in the world of oncology. So again, simple. I like that you're kind of encouraging people to pull out, dust off their old lab tests and see if there's some clues there that might warrant a little deeper investigation. The second test I like for folks to run, again, often run routinely, is your complete metabolic panel. CMP, sometimes known as the chem panel. Um, This is typically looking at your electrolytes, your uh, organs of function, so your your cardiovascular function, your kidney function, your liver function via some some enzyme activity. This is also a super important uh, clue to see what's going on. So for instance, if your creatinine is moving above one, we know that your kidneys are, are are struggling. They're really, they're not filtering properly. Or if your liver enzymes are starting to move above 2025, we know that there is some issues around how your liver is processing things along the way. If ALKFOS is raising, then that can often show us first signs of bone loss or bone metastasis. These are some really powerful ways to assess people's um, response to the medications because those enzymes will often go up when they're being beaten up by some drugs. But it's also a really good way to get a sense if there are other organs involved in the overall you know, cancering process. Again, another very inexpensive test. And Dr. McCullough, you likely remember that about 15 years ago, we actually ran routinely what was called a Chem um, 20, or excuse me, a Chem, yeah, a Chem 20 panel. Or Chem 24. Exactly, right? Yeah. These were routine and that included the other one, uh, two other very important tests that I now have to order separately right. since it's not part of, which is the lactase dehydrogenase, which is probably the most underutilized and most important test across all chronic illness patterns because it is a marker of metabolic function. My husband, a biochemist, likes to say that if the LDH is elevated, 
or in simpler terms, if the LDH is on, then the mitochondria is off. So that's a pretty interesting way to look at this. And you can even break down that overall LDH into its five constituents of these five isoenzymes and really know precisely where the hiccups are happening in that metabolic process, whether it's at the level of the bone, the lung, the kidney, the liver, the red blood cell, pretty fascinating. And again, very inexpensive. This is also the main way to monitor things like lymphoma, most leukemias, multiple myeloma, and even melanoma. It is considered sort of the cancer marker for those. And yet it's a very um, misused and even uh, misunderstood and forgotten lab test. I can't tell you how many times I've asked doctors to run an LDH for the patient and I'll get back an LDL, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. which is... <laughs> Hey, I mean, it's happened about two out of 10 times. It's crazy. Wow, that is nuts. Yeah, but it didn't have to worry in the past because it was part of the normal panel. But what is the connection between LDH and mitochondrial function? So this sure. is where we're looking at how we are processing um, lactase dehydrogenase, the process of how we're fermenting or processing our energy through our Krebs cycle, through our, um, you know, the, 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 the shuttle through our Krebs cycle to produce ATP. Um, is intimately in relationship to the dehydrogenases, whether it's pyruvate or lactate dehydrogenase. So this starts to give you some clues that all is not well in the mitochondrial building when that level starts to rise. Now, interestingly enough, one thing I neglected to mention as we started talking about the labs is labs, of course, today are based on the average of the population in the region in which they're being run. So for instance, if you live in Alabama and you're running a, a glucose level, they're still saying you're fine at 120 fasting glucose. But no if you're way. Colorado, they're saying that 90 is fine, you know? So it even varies region to region, but overall you don't wanna be average today with regards to your lab values. So when I'm talking my functional ranges or ideal ranges, for instance, a lactase dehydrogenase through, say, LabCorp should be ideally under 175. I believe the cutoff is around 263. If you run it through Quest, that's a different, uh, yeah, a different metric that they run, and that should be under 450. It has a higher cutoff at around 6, 650. So you want to be well under the top end on lactase dehydrogenase for optimal ranges. Can you be too low? You can. That's an excellent question. When you're too low, that's often a major indicator of extreme malnutrition, uh, often uh, muscle breakdown, muscle wasting, uh, sarcopenia, cachexia, which is also a very dangerous place to be in the pendulum of an oncology or chronic illness process. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the other test. Yeah. Well, and the other one that used to be standard with those more extensive chem panels not too long ago was the sedimentation rate, the, um, also known as the ESR. Um, this is a really powerful, simple test that just basically looks at how fast your cells are falling out of solution, you know, falling out of the plasma. And that test, if you fall out really quickly, that kind of means that your blood is pretty, you know, everything's kind of floating right through there. So we ideally like that sed rate to be under 10. Um, if it starts to go above that, that starts to show that it takes a little bit for those cells to kind of fall out of this webbing, fibrinolytic, thick, sticky, 
scaffolding that actually has been very akin to a lot of issues in chronic inflammation, autoimmunity, and even increasing our risk of metastasis, which depends on that sort of fibrinolytic scaffolding to move about the building. We don't typically die from primary cancers um, unless they're strategically placed in some valuable real estate in the body. However, we do um, have a higher incidence of death from metastasis. And so when I look at that um, number, it tells me how well someone's, you know, how, how smooth things are flowing through the system of the body. Okay. How do you compare the SED rate to HSCRP? Uh, because it seems that would be easier to do. Yeah. Well, same blood test. And we actually used to run SED, to, SED ESRs in our, in our office. It's yeah. an easy test to do, but uh, I, I, it's my assessment that the HSCRP might be a more sensitive tool, but I'm wondering what your experience shows. Well, with the HSCRP, which is the fifth test I request for everybody to run, and I love seeing that that's a, a recommended test for your in your books as well, this is also something that we have spent too many years sort of making it seem like it's just related to cardiovascular health, but it again is a prognostic factor. Folks with elevated CRPs, no matter what kind of disease condition they have, have poorer prognosis and lower survival rates overall. Again, found throughout all of the literature um, searches specific to that lab value. How it differs is because CRP is just a general marker of inflammation. It doesn't quite show us the where. It definitely tells us the what, like it's happening, right? It's a very important marker. For me, functionally, I want that under one. Unless you have a lab that has a cutoff under 0.3, then I want that value under 0.1. So that's why we always wanna make sure we get a quantitative, because if they say less than five, it could oh, be cool. Worth it. Doesn't that drive you crazy? Exactly. Yeah. So I want a quantitative CRP, high sensitivity CRP, C-reactive protein, if at all possible, um, because it gives us the most information and we really can monitor it closely. But here's where the interesting piece comes together. Any of those tests, specifically the LDH, the SED rate, and the CRP, any of them by themselves have a lot of good studies backing them for their role in monitoring a cancering process or a lot of other chronic illness inflammatory processes. But what I've learned over 25 years at this point and looking at, um, at, at, this, at this count, probably 200,000 or more of these labs run on tens of thousands of patients to look at very particular patterns is that when all three of those levels are within my functional ranges, so below 10 on SED rate, below one or 0.1 on CRP, below 175 or 450 on LDH, if a person has all of those within my functional ranges, I know that they are behind the wheel of their car, okay? I know they are driving. No matter what the scan, no matter what the tumor markers tell me, I know that patient's um, uh, terrain and mitochondrial metabolic health is still robust enough that no matter what the tumor burden, we can still move this vehicle down the building or you know, down the road. When I start to see those numbers collectively rise, because every once in a while you'll see a thrown off CRP or a thrown off LDH or a thrown off ESR. If I see, for instance, a thrown off ESR, I know that they're likely having some type of an autoimmune response. We see this a lot in RA, Sjogren's, Hashimoto's flares, you know, a lot of those patterns of autoimmunity really will throw off an ESR. So then you can kind of get a sense of what? 
or if they have, let's say, a CRP that's really out of range, but the other two are perfect, that could be that they just had dental work or had a really intense workout or really stubbed their toe or stepped on their child's Lego, you know? And then the LDH might be that they had a bender of drinking with their friends for the weekend or have um, been taking some steroids and their bones are breaking down very quickly or just went and did a humongous hike and broke down some muscle very, very quickly. But collectively, that's the key is when all three are in the functional range, the body is still in, in control. The terrain is still in control. When it starts to rise, that's when we know we're on a slippery slope. And I will tell you this from years of experience, that when I have seen people with no evidence of disease scans and perfect tumor markers, no matter what the cancer type was, if that trifecta is elevated, I'm holding my breath. I am more frightened for those patients than I am for the patients that still are showing significant tumor burden on scans or even elevated tumor markers. It's only a matter of time in those patients when it is exploding. That basically means that the cancer stem cells are lining up to take action. And that's what we don't have very good success with in Western medical treatment strategies. Well, thank you for expanding on that brilliantly. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And I want to take off from there on these cancer stem cells. I, I recently did an interview uh, just a few weeks ago, actually, with Dr. Thomas Seafried, who you were a big fan of as, as well as I'm, uh, I am. am I. Uh, and we had a discussion about the cancer stem cells, and he really helped me understand that it really isn't a cancer stem cell as much as it is, is, a, is a hybridized and morphed macrophage that comes in and typically uh, fuses with some of the cancer cells. And because it's a macrophage, it, it spreads through your blood and it can seed into other tissues. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because he's of the strong opinion, unlike many people who treat cancer, that he's strongly opposed to bi biopsies. Just for this very reason is that you could increase seeding cancer stem cells or, or hybridized macrophages throughout the body. And even though you may, it may help in the initial treatment of the disease, you might die a few years later down the road because the cancer is metastasized. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on can uh, biopsies in treatment of cancer. Well, it's interesting. His concern of that seeding, we have had those concerns for as long as I've dealt with my own cancer since 1991, and even through my medical uh, training through the mid-90s was these were absolute concerns. And it's always been sort of poo-pooed or suppressed of, of this discussion. And yet, it's, it's, we, we've seen many times that um, depending on the timing, let's say, of your cycle, when you have a mastectomy, or the type of anesthesia used at a time of a biopsy, or the state of the overall health, or even the, the size of the, the biopsy, um, you know, the core biopsy um, chamber, that we definitely have that, that potential to seed. And so what has happened is up until the last few years, kind of we still had to do it no matter what. And we hold on to that sort of option of diagnosis um, and, and treatment, you know, to help guide our treatments because that was sort of our archaic way of understanding precisely what we were dealing with. But the beauty today is that we have come into the era of precision medicine. We've come into the era of really evolving and improving on blood biopsies where we don't have to puncture into the tissue and have, even if it's more theoretic 
because we don't have, I mean, Dr. Seyfried will point out some of the studies that are out there showing that it's beyond theory at this point, but, but ultimately, even those who are still arguing, arguing that it's just theory, well, guess what? We have the opportunity now to actually look at the blood and gauge those little guys that are moving about the building outside of that primary tumor because the primary tumor itself, frankly, by the time it's big enough and loud enough to get our attention, we already have seeding happening. We already have cells moving around. In fact, on any given moment, we all have cells, but when we have a functioning immune system, a functioning terrain, our body is handling that on a day-to-day -day basis. But over time, we get enough insult to injury to the whole terrain, then we don't have the ability to kind of keep house as readily as we had previously. So to me, where I think medicine is going, and I attend and uh, listen to a lot of uh, studies and research and work uh, summits on circulating tumor cells, circulating stem cells, to know that biopsies are likely not going to be utilized anymore, right? Or, or not that's for long. Not the right. Super. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we're going that, you know, it, there are definite pros and cons of all of these, right? We're, we haven't perfected it, but we are certainly moving in the right direction. And we can actually, what I love about the blood testing for circulating tumor cells is today we can even get circulating tumor cell counts on platforms such as Biocept um, out of California and others that are actually showing us what is in circulation so we can actually monitor every couple of months to see that whatever therapy we've chosen, whether it was complete standard of care, completely quote unquote alternative, or some you know, hybrid of the two, that we are actually making a dent. And if we aren't, we get a change course right away. So we don't have to guess or wait until something's again big enough and consuming enough to our body's resources to uh, capture our attention and then make a plan. That's when we get in trouble is to wait for when it's too late. Okay, so one of the other um, challenges that Dr. Seyfried has, and I suspect you share, is that he's, there, there's three primary tools that conventional medicine has to treat cancer. One is uh, uh, radiation, the other is chemotherapy, and the third is surgery. So he's opposed pretty strongly to the first two, and, and I'll let you give your viewpoints on it, but it seems to be that surgery is indicated many times, but there's a specific strategy that can be used for surgery, which essentially is optimizing nutritional ketosis putting the person into fasting even for a few days prior to that so that the margins of the tumor can be more well-defined and demarcated so that the, and, and it be, the cells become less aggressive because they're relatively debilitated and they're easier to identify and remove. So I'm wondering if you agree with that, what your, what your comments are on the other two strategies. And, and, and thirdly, if for whatever reason you can't convince your clinician or are unwilling to switch and find a different clinician, to avoid using a biopsy if, if going into the same strategy of nutritional ketosis or deep ketosis mm -hmm. would be for a biopsy if you had to, because it is a type of surgery. Perfect. I, all of these things I, I'm excited to asking questions about because in the perfect world, the type of client that I would be working with or consulting on will, will not have already done their biopsy or their surgery, right? Unfortunately, that is rarely the case, although, again, my mission is to change that. You know, it's like, let's take a breath, step back, and really create a robust terrain that can mitigate as much of that concern of either seeding or progression of the disease with regards to a biopsy or an actual surgical resection. Yeah. Let me just put an insert a little tangent here and let you continue. Yeah. But, but that is the primary, one of the primary reasons for this 
interview is to make sure that people understand this before they come down with or one of their loved ones come down with cancer so you don't make that mistake so yes because it's never you know that's the thing i tell people the um, the emergency of cancer unless as i mentioned earlier unless it was a particular tumor that came on fast in a very uh in a uh, in a part of the body that's blocking you know something like a a, a vessel or um you know a, obstructing a colon or whatnot those become medical emergencies However, the vast majority of cancer diagnoses are not emergencies. The real emergency is the diagnosis itself, and the way you react or respond to that emergency will often really dictate your success at overcoming or maintaining this process. So I'm really thankful for the opportunity to, to say this on a much larger platform because it's very important. So that being said, if I know someone is getting ready to prepare for a surgery or a biopsy because I treat them the same, whether it's just a tiny little punch lesion on the superficial to look if this is a melanoma or something that's opening up the body cavity and going on a hunting, you know, on, that, on an excavation. So that being said, we like to spend at least a couple of weeks prepping the body exactly as you were saying. We like to start things like modified citrus pectin. We start to um, uh, get them into a fasted state or a metabolic flexible state for the weeks leading up and a fasted state going into the surgery itself. If we are lucky enough to have their SNPs, their single nucleotide polymorphisms, we then can really help them decide on the best strategy for pain management. We do our best to have them avoid opiates at all costs because it's really related to slowing down wound healing, increasing can uh, cancer cell proliferation, and destroying the microbiome, as well as all the issues that it has around addictions and um, uh, help really not helping the pain in the way that it needs to be helped. So we work on other means of, of that as well. And then from that, we also do kind of a post-surgical intervention of how to help them heal up from that wound as quickly as possible. Maybe a bit more protein is needed at that time. Maybe a little bit less sodium is needed at that time. Just these little tweaky strategies, person by person, to really prep them. If they're a woman who's still menstruating, we will uh, try and schedule their surgery where the estrogen levels in their menstrual cycle are at their lowest. That's been um, an interesting strategy we've used with better outcomes. Uh, same thing, whether it's a breast, whether it's a uterus, any type of surgery, we really try and lower the estrogen levels. So there are strategies we can do to help our patients have better outcomes and better recovery from the treatment itself. And fasting is a very powerful tool. So are some homeopathic remedies, as controversial as they are. The nurses in my community at the hospital in my town, they always knew it was gonna be an easy night when they saw this um, gallon of water that a patient would bring in to say their name with their you know, filtered water for Joe, right? And the nurses always knew, they're like, that has to be a Nasha client because I would have them load them up with homeopathics like uh, phosphorus to help with drug reaction and bleeding issues, arnica, staphysagria, you know, all these different things. So the, the nurses knew it would be an easy recovery night. They wouldn't probably be dealing with drug overdose issues or uh, bleed outs in the middle of the night because these were things that really enhanced their outcomes. So funky little simple strategies such as that. But specifically, you know, when we look at the big stats across all tumor types, all stages, all demographics, chemotherapy has about a 3% um, success rate across the board. Radiation, about a 12% success rate across the board. And uh, surgery, about a 50% success rate across the board. So it's no wonder that Dr. Seyfried would be more in favor of surgery. 
Now, when I say success rate, what I'm meaning is uh, a debulking, you know, a cytotoxic pushback, a, a making smaller of the tumor itself from a variety of ways, and a response. That doesn't mean a cure, and that doesn't mean, you know, a, 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 a uh, no evidence of disease, right? So we kind of have different semantics in the cancer world compared to a lot of other health conditions. So that being said, when we look at, for instance, utilizing something like radiation, it's been well understood that if a patient's insulin and glucose are elevated, that radiation is basically ineffective because cancer cells are made, uh, are desensitized to radiation when they're being bathed in sugar. So I think about all the patients that are, you know, metabolically unstable, metabolically inflexible, pre-diabetic, which I hate that word because all it means is you're already diabetic. You're just, you know, before we can officially title you as such. Um, but that basically means you just created a lot more damaged environment, a lot more uh, possibility for mutating cells and a lot more possibility for recurrence and progression simply because someone didn't take the time to just do a simple finger stick or a blood draw to see what your glucose levels were. Another thing that makes radiation ineffective is elevated vasoendothelial growth factor. Again, a simple serum or blood test can help you know how successful your cancer is going to be with regards to a radi radiation treatment. So we can prep patients, we can maybe spend um, a few weeks to a few months getting them ready for their radiation by lowering VEGF, by lowering insulin, insulin growth factor, hemoglobin A1C, and glucose, and adding in some radio sensitizers such as melatonin or astragalus into the mix to help these patients actually have better response to their therapy, and even better around the world in particular, but in a few pockets here in the United States, when you combine radiation with hyperthermia done on the same day, the outcomes are extraordinary. You get a synergy and a, a, a cumulative effect that's far more robust and powerful, lowering the side effects, and as well as helping strengthen and, and embolden and create an, uh, what we call an abscopal um, terrain effect of an immune reaction that actually helps take and harness that radiation and make it act like an immunogenic therapy. And then backtracking over to chemo again, the way we do chemo to that maximum tolerated dose approach is barbaric. And it's incredible how we could take a therapy that we've been using for 70 years without much improvement in our outcomes, lower it down to what's known as metronomic levels or fractionated levels, giving it at about a tenth of what we would normally give. And when you do it at that level, you not only create a cytotoxic direct cell kill, but you actually simultaneously enhance an immune response. The way we do chemo today obliterates the immune system. And the only way you can really overcome cancer and stay in a maintainable place or a remission place is with a functioning immune system. Absolutely, <clears throat> which is the next, my next follow-up point, uh, because really the chemo and the radiation, the major downside, as you mentioned, is that they obliterate the immune system. And that radically increases your risk for recurrence down the road. So even though you may have a short-term cure or remission, long-term, it's a death sentence because they're destroying the very function, the cells that function in your body to prevent a recurrence. So I'm wondering what your views are because you've, been doing, you've treated thousands and thousands of patients. And uh, if you feel there really is ever a place for chemo or radiation, especially mm -hmm. 
modulate is the way you're saying, reducing the dose by 90%, and especially uh, optimizing their, their metabolism so that the cells are more resistant and putting them on low, uh, you know, so that they're, they're making ketones and their glucose levels are low, and you maybe even have some, on some glutamine inhibitors so that the cancer cells are essentially starving, starving and they're weakened and they're very susceptible to being killed. Exactly. Well, so interestingly enough, I don't ever make that call for a patient. I believe very strongly that the, the folks who consult with me, be it the patient historically or their doctors now on their behalf, I'm really there to support where the patient is. Unfortunately, today, most people are very brainwashed. There's only one way. Okay, so I'm trying to, what I'm trying to help people understand is we can take that one way and make it far less dangerous and far more effective by manipulating it, okay? And by doing so via the extreme biochemical individuality of the person that I'm treating or supporting, right? So getting that understanding of exactly what their tissue type is um, and beyond just, oh, it's breast cancer, ERPR positive, that's, that's a tiny tip of the iceberg. We can today actually look at their targets and look at other molecular markers such as EGFR, VEGFR, um, mTOR, IGF-1, you know, CHECK-2, BRCA. I mean, there's so many things we can look at to sort of get a sense of the flavor and the personality of the tissue itself, which shows us some of the other metabolic um, issues going on that we can then treat with things like metronomic chemotherapy or targeted therapies or um, things like off-label drugs that specifically target some of those pathways, or nutraceuticals, certain, um, you know, uh, certain herbs and supplements that also target a lot of those metabolic pathways. And we don't guess, we actually put together a very precise bullseye approach to each and every individual. And we continue every three months while they're in the cancering process until their trifecta is perfect, we continue to assess and we continue to tweak the treatment because those cells, once they've been exposed to a new treatment over a short period of time, typically three to six months, it'll have morphed and mutated into an entirely new animal. And so we have to be a few steps ahead of that process each and every time. So back to your initial question of, is there ever a time and a place for chemotherapy? You know, my teacher, Dr. Bastier, before he died, basically said, you can use chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, targeted therapies, naturopathically. You can use them very biochemically individualized and very thoughtfully and intentionally, but don't just put it like just napalm the field or put everybody on the same protocol. That's where if there's a giant tumor burden or if there's a person who's very frightened to just go it the alternative route, and has deep faith or belief that their conventional therapies are where they need to go to get the help they need, then by all means, let's figure out exactly what standard of care therapies your body's going to respond to. Let's find out, let's lower the dose drastically. Let's bring on therapies that will also enhance and target other pathways. Because we can't hit every single pathway with chemotherapy or we'll kill the patient right out. But there are things like the ketogenic diet, which impacts all 10 of the hallmarks of cancer simultaneously, thereby enhancing the effect of whatever therapy you overlay on it. None of these therapies should ever be considered individually 
nor should they ever, is there ever going to be such thing as a single magic bullet for cancer? That is where we get seduced by the pharmaceutical industry and even the nutraceutical and alternative medical industry to think that there's one cause and one cure for this process. It is just that, it is a process and it's just as unique in each of us as our fingerprints. There's a common perception that sugar feeds cancer, and to a certain extent that's true, but it's, it's actually far more complex than that. And as, and as an, uh, an artifact of that perception, there's uh, another concept that people believe that keto is the magic bullet to treat cancer. And while keto is important, it is by in no way, and I'm a massive fan of keto. I integrate some form of it. I mean, I, I don't believe in continuous ketosis is good for virtually anyone because I believe in cyclical ketosis. But, but uh, having said that, I'm wondering if you can give us your opinion, opinion about that and how it's integrated. And then and as an extension of that, the challenge that we have with many uh, late cancer patients where you get into cancer cachexia and they, they are under their ideal body weight, which is actually a contraindication for any type of fasting or intermittent, even intermittent fasting, if it's really severe cachexia, how you handle that? Great questions. Now, for some reason, though I've been doing this for myself and you know tens of thousands of patients for almost 27 and a half, 28 years at this point, I've been applying the concepts of metabolic flexibility to myself and others for many years. I was very careful with the languaging I used in clinical practice because you can imagine back in the late 90s, if I had started talking about ketogenic diet, I would have been, as a naturopathic doctor, would have been hung out to dry before I ever got started. Um, but as the momentum and the conversation started to get out there, I could kind of come out of my closet a little bit as far as how I approach things. So I've sort of been labeled as the ketogenic promoter, but like you, I see it as a tool and I see multiple ways to achieve metabolic flexibility, which might include high fat, low carbohydrate eating, which might include intermittent fasting or narrow window eating scheduling, which might include exogenous ketone supplementation, which might include certain pharmaceutical interventions, which might include caloric restrictive um, you know, path, you know, patterns of eating. Um, and so that being said is one of the things that I found with a diet that enhances metabolic flexibility is we've all gotten out of that in the last 150 years. We were all naturally meant to be these hybrid engines. And so all of the muck we've put into our machinery is too much burning of carbohydrates. And, and we call the way, uh, when we talk low carb eating, that was actually normal carb eating until about 1850, when we started to process sugar, flour, and salt, um, and started to put it in everything. So we were all, in essence, low carbers. Okay, this wasn't a fad, this is just the way it was. So we've gotten to this place now, we put these sort of hats on, we create these dogmas, and we create these kind of dietary pissing contests, and it gets really weird and skewed. But the reality is, is I test and assess every patient. If I have a patient who's successfully eating a low carbohydrate vegan diet and their labs reflect that it's working for them, I'm not gonna change it. Or, you know, the same thing, if I have a person that's eating a carnivorous diet for say a terminal brain tumor, which in my mind, always put me on, on edge, but their labs are saying that it's working for them. 
I'm not going to bucket. These are the biochemical individual, individual things that I look at with my patients, including their epigenetic expression, which also shows who's going to have a certain response or lack of response to a certain way of eating. But ultimately what happens when we eat more in a metabolically flexible state or have ketones in our system at certain times, especially around our time of chemo, radiation, surgery, targeted therapies, hormone blocking therapies, we enhance those therapies. It's like a Trojan horse. It's like somehow those ketones are like a Trojan horse to carry that toxic therapy right to its target and to give some support to the healthier cells around it. So I see it as a therapeutic tool. I never see it as a standalone by itself. So that I think is an important piece to put out there and to realize there's multiple ways to enhance these outcomes, but that's one of the most significant ways to hit multiple targets at once and really lower a lot of the side effects a lot of our patients are dealing with in these therapies. And I'm sorry, there was one more follow-up question that you had. How you address the importance, especially if you're going to be a surgical intervention and the patient should be in a fasted state, but it's contraindicated because they're severely underweight because of the cancer cachexia. So what is the strategy in that type of individual? Is there, I mean, to me, you're between a rock and a hard place. So what do you do? Well, I test, number one, because being skinny will not kill you. Being cachectic can. Okay, so you can't just look at someone and say you're cachectic or not. We do that. We do that when we start to see the weight come off on a scale and folks go in for their, you know, chemotherapy. Doctors freak out. Their uh, team starts to tell them, no matter what, don't lose more weight. Eat, 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 eat. And yet cachexia is an inflammatory cytokine driven process and it's driven by sugar. Okay, very much. So it's inflammation metabolic um, um, imbalance, period. So the worst thing you can ever give a patient with cachexia is boost or insure or TPN. Okay. We actually, on many cancer wards, TPN is basically known as the beginning of the end. Okay. When you look at the first ingredients of all of those things I talked about, it's highly synthetic, highly toxic, four different types of sugars, most of them very synthetic and you know, uh, corn syrups and gluten and all types of things that kick up that inflammatory process even more. Yeah, excuse me, uh, for, but those who don't know TPN is total parental nutrition, which is an IV therapy. Sometimes it has to be done if the people can't eat by mouth for whatever reason. Yeah, and so here's where we actually assess in my um, uh, clinical experience to see if somebody's actually truly in, cachex in cachexia. That's with a metabolic panel, okay? So we look at protein, creatinine, calcium, and albumin. Specifically, if protein is under seven and albumin is under four, then we know the patient is slipping into sarcopenia, into metabolic wasting, into this process of cachexia. And you can see that in morbidly obese patients. You can see that in patients that by all visual standards are on the scale look totally normal. This is not something you can eyeball clinically. It has to be tested. You can even do body fat impedance testing because BMIs are BS. Okay, we don't ever even, if you're still looking at those, throw that out. But body fat impedance and these blood tests are very simple ways to know. So I've really taught my patients and their families and their medical team that, yeah, and I teach them like, if you have a patient who's very skinny, let's go back and think about the time we learned about the concept of cachexia the most was after World War II, when the soldiers came in and liberated the concentration camps. You have all these people that were severely, severely malnourished. Many of them survived simply because of ketones, okay? Mm -hmm. 
Some of them, however, flipped over into the cachex, a state of cachexia sarcopenia, an absolute metabolic wasting that was breaking down as quickly as possible. So these well-meaning soldiers coming in to liberate them gave them candy bars. Oh, all the worst of these thing they people, could do. Exactly. And all these people who, I mean, I, I think you want to cry when I think about this. Thousands of liberated prisoners died from something known as refeeding syndrome, which is when you take somebody who's in a metabolic wasting state, sarcopenic, cachectic state, and you suddenly, after they have not eaten something for a while, give them sugar, they will die. That's a thing. Have your patients, have your listeners go and Google refeeding syndrome. We were not taught about this in medical school. But when you start to look, it's, it's a very dangerous medical condition that can shut the organs down very, very, very quickly. And we see this a lot in cancer, um, you know, wings around the world of, you know, patients. My patients, interestingly enough, the patients who have come out of cachexia the best were those that we were able to safely fast or safely kick them into ketosis, whether it was exogenous ketones or start to slowly increase their fat intake to what was tolerated because of nature of cachexia is an absolute loss of hunger. And so mm. thanks to things today, such as medical marijuana, we can often restart their endocannabinoid system and re-up their um, ability to have hunger and kick in that part of the brain that has been shut down with a state of cachexia and actually stabilize them and reverse it. This is a condition that is not reversible by Western standards. So that is very interesting. I, uh, I, I've recently encountered information too that suggests there's a pretty strong correlation between total, between total protein levels and albumin and mortality. So yes. that the lower those go, the higher your risk of dying prematurely. So that's another good indication. And I'm wondering if you find a patient in that condition, and maybe if you can tell me the optimal levels, you said below yeah. seven or below four, I think was what, but I mean, what's the optimum level? And then would it be reasonable to put a patient on a carnivore diet, which would be absolutely zero carbs, significant amount of meat, probably some collagen or glycine to offset the methionine to glycine mm -hmm. ratio. Uh, and then that would put them in ketosis because there's no carbs, even though they're in protein. Right. So, I mean, would, is that a strategy you'd consider or toyed with? Yeah, for cachexia, you can get yeah. away with that for a short period of time yeah. because you will definitely yeah. pick up some gluconeogenesis and some mTOR, but short period to stabilize the, yeah. the bottom restricted e With an restricted eating window, like six to eight yeah. hours, so that you are, you are resting your mTOR. Yes, yes, exactly. That has been a strategy we have used successfully. Um, we've also been able to successfully use total parenteral um, high fat um, and feeding uh, to bats as well. We've been able to basically, in clinical situations, make our own feeding tube foods. You just give IV coconut oil, right? Basically, kind of. I mean, you're kind of. I mean, not <laughs> IV, but you can do it, parent. You know, um, through feeding tubes. You yeah, can do feeding tubes. Sure. But you can do some really amazing amino acid um, acid IV therapies that can stabilize folks, and sure. especially um, like that albumin piece is quite powerful. If you can get them some IV albumin, which is so weird that we yeah, really yeah. fight against this. Because so what, what, are, what are the ideal levels for the protein and the albumin? You want protein and albumin, both um, protein above seven and albumin above four. If one of them's dropped, I'm not worried. But if both of them drop, that is definitive in my mind that we're starting to switch into muscle wasting. Now, when I see that, I start testing the patient weekly on their chem panel until that stabilizes. And we can usually turn it around within 10, 10 days to two weeks. 
Interesting, interesting. Yeah. And how long, how long does it take to, uh, to level out to the ideal levels? Within that two-week window, typically. Oh, two weeks, you can get them yeah. to seven and above four. Wow, it's that is fantastic. Now, if there's a lot of ascites, if there's a lot of fluid buildup on board, we might have to do some other strategies around it. But if I'm lucky enough to get them away from their well-meaning reg registered dietitian and their overly worried family members and help them understand the process, then we have success. But oftentimes, you know, that nature of watching your loved one whittle away is very terrifying. And our, our desire to just feed them whatever it is they want to eat overwhelms oh. us. But it's like you wouldn't feed a diabetic who's dying of end-stage you know, um, organ failure from diabetes. You wouldn't start feeding them Dunkin' Donuts, you know, or a person who's... Well, yeah, some hospitals or, might. Some hospitals well, may check food. They may do that. <laughs> You're right, unfortunately. But, you know, it, thinking, this is where Jess and I, our new book that's coming out, we're going to have an entire chapter on this topic because we allude to it in our book, but it is such, it's probably the most challenging discussion when it comes to cancer nutrition that there is. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, focus, yeah. Uh, part of the education of, her, of the ONI, of the Oncology Nutrition For, for the cancer cachexia, do you have any recommendations for grams per kilogram of protein? Does it go up instead of one gram, it might go up to a gram and a half or two grams per kilogram? That's exactly it. We start, so we, you know, I'm trying to keep patients between 0.8 and one grams per kilogram. Normally, really right. Cancer causes normally, but when cachexia hits old, we start to go up by um, a couple gram, a, a couple tenths of a point every few days. So we might go 1.2 grams, then 1.5, and 1.8, then two max. I don't go above two. You don't go above um, two, okay. But we don't need to. Okay. Right. Yes. And so that's what's pretty interesting. So no, these are such, I'm really pleased that you brought this into the question, um, to the discussion, because it is probably, to me, the saddest part of my work is to watch people unnecessarily succumb to cachexia and not cancer. And it's a reality. I mean, people it's die from this every day. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that is really valuable insights. I really appreciate that because to me, that's one of the biggest dilemmas. And agreed. And there's very few people who understand it at your level that because you requires a foundational comprehensive understanding of nutrition, which very few clinicians have. And then they have be in the trenches and see tens of thousands of patients. So it's, it's not many people who have that, that combination. You're certainly one of them. So thank you for that feedback. So what has been the resistance in your recommendation of this modulated or moderated uh, radiotherapy and chemotherapy, uh, is it difficult, what, per what percentage of the clinicians that their patients are consulting with will accept these modifications? And do you have any specific strategies to help the patient convince their, their, their clinician or perhaps even recommend to find an alternative clinician who's more open to in integrating these recommendations? Absolutely, you know, a few years ago, I would not have even uh, had an opportunity to sit down with a general family practitioner and have this conversation. And yet today, you know, every week I'm speaking with conventional oncologists all over the world that are being frankly kind of pushed or coerced or forced by their patients to have a consultation with me on their behalf. And at first they're a bit resistant until they realize that I'm simply trying to enhance their outcomes, that I'm not trying to do an either or that I'm trying to help them understand that the tools in their toolbox can be used differently and can be used a bit more effectively and even more safely. And it's taken things like some of these tumor cell assays and blood cell assays like Biocept or Garden 360 or Foundation One to help them start to have a common language 
to understand that there are more targets to address than simple standard of care chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery. So that's been exciting at this sort of era of, of precision medicine has really changed the conversation and we're all more in dialogue versus an either or process. That's number one. Number two, the limiting factor. For instance, I have a, a doctor I speak with a lot from um, uh, uh, UCSF, very up, up in, the, in the field of this. And the problem is, ironically, if he recommended metronomic, which is the lower fractionated dosing of chemotherapy to his patients, it would not be covered by insurance. <laughs> Even though the cost is less. How insane is that? That is considered off-label drug use or out-of-the-box use, and it is not considered standard of care. Therefore, it is not covered by insurance. So unfortunately, where we are in this moment, which I am on a mission to change, is that you will likely have to track down people out of network and pay out of pocket to get the proper treatment to actually test, assess, and address your cancer to your biochemically unique self to have a good outcome. And that sucks, but that's just the way it is right now. All right. Well, that's a great answer. I wasn't expecting that. Sorry, but it's sad, but true. No, but, but it's the reality, the truth. And thank you for <laughs> making such progress in the field and helping change the behavior of many of these oncologists. And hopefully when they see the results, which you know, are long, it's a long-term play, they'll become more intrigued and yeah. hopefully integrate this into their regular practice and not necessarily require you. But, but the, the process of you describing that highlights the next question, which is, how you operate as a clinician. Initially, you were seeing patients yourself, but you've abandoned that model because it's just not scalable and you can't help as many people as you need to. So you're only really at this point consulting with clinicians like the oncologist or the uh, would probably be the most common, I would imagine, but maybe it's not or their, their family physician or generalist who can who is administering the therapy to in, integrate these. So can you describe how your practice has morphed and what the current format is. And if someone was interested, is challenged with this diagnosis and either them or their family members, how they would uh, seek uh, guidance from, from your practice. Perfect. Well, first of all, you know, for years I had a family practice here in the Four Corners region of the United States, um, kind of far away from every, everyone, a little bit cowboyish where I lived. And so as a naturopath at that time in an unlicensed state, we basically um, had to create relationships with our local physicians to be able to practice safely and effectively. Over time, I built up a reputation among my colleagues to the point where they came to see me themselves or referred their own family members or their own patients over to us and started to realize that as a naturopathic physician, I offered tools that they couldn't um, in their conventional standard of, of care practice. So that was just the building of relationships. That's where it started. Over time, that evolved where, because of my own personal success with my own terminal cancer diagnosis, people started to pay attention as I started to see other patients that were given death sentences and were able to far outlive their um, expiration date or go into uh, remission or have an incredibly robust maintenance disease process that they're still thriving today. And it just kind of creeped out word by mouth. And I had an opportunity to speak at an ovarian cancer summit in 2012 that literally changed the trajectory of my life because that's a small group of women, about 24,000 women a year diagnosed with ovarian cancer and over 17,000 women a year dying 
of ovarian cancer. So this is a small group of women who feel very abandoned by their medical um, institutions who are desperate to look for things to keep themselves on this planet for as long and, and healthfully as possible. So because of that, that's a small group, they talk to each other worldwide. They started coming from all over the world to my tiny little clinic, like trains, planes, and automobiles to get down here to Durango, Colorado. And quickly that became unscalable and overwhelming. So then I started hosting cancer retreats where I would basically do these deep four-day immersions to basically teach them everything I could about their own terrain, about how to test, assess, and address their own labs, about some of the vetted therapies that might be appropriate for them, and then send them back into their communities in hopes that someone would help them implement this. That was hugely successful, and in fact, that's what became the, the base for the book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, which is my book that came out in May of 2017, which outlines this process very specifically. But even then, that became non-scalable and overwhelming. And what has happened in the last few years when I left private practice and just started consulting is that the bottleneck has always been the physician. Whether you're a naturopathic doctor, whether you're an MD, a DO, whether you're a specialized, trained oncologist, they would get these very extensive reports or lab requests or even lab results and simply go, I don't know what to do with this or simply say, I'm not gonna do anything with this, which is unfortunate. And so seeing and hearing that over and over again made me realize that we have about 50% of the population will have cancer in their lifetime in the United States. And we need to get physicians boots on the ground to be able to help change the outcomes. And so that's where I've been putting my energy. And so today, um, whether physicians have heard me speak on podcasts or at medical conferences or patients have historically worked with me or have heard about me through other patient forums. I mean, social media today can be a gift and a curse, but it's ultimately a lifeline for many folks going through this process. But now they are going in and requesting their physicians to have a consultation with me on their behalf. For me to step in, take that bird's eye view and help the doctor see what I'm seeing and help them understand a strategy of testing, assessing and, and adjusting the treatment along the way and helping them sort of filter through the riffraff of all the misinformation and bad information that's out there for both practitioners and patients alike because of my 25 plus years traveling all over the world, keeping my own butt alive all these years and tens of thousands of other patients. Um, I think that it's becoming a pretty cool, um, successful, appreciated strategy among my colleagues. And it's, it's a lot of fun to see light bulbs go off and to see them put together all the pieces of their life and education coming together at once to realize they actually do know this stuff. They just have never quite framed it or put it together in this way that can really change how their patients are being managed. Yes, indeed. So I was um, intrigued at the consultation I sat in on of the additional testing that is offered that is really specific for the diagnosis. So that's something that you do in these individual consults because obviously there's the five basic tests, which is such a valuable tool that no one has to see you for that. I mean, you can just do those and monitors themselves. You've told us what the tests are and you've given us the optimal ranges and that's something that should be done by virtually everyone. So, uh, but in addition to that, there's other specific tests that can be very useful in monitoring. So that's another strategy and a benefit from having a consultation is to, to have these other tools and other specific interventions that can be utilized depending on their, on their, their, uh, 
circumstances and it's an individualized customized approach it's just not a cookie cutter pro not process because you could have like for instance the person we had our consult with <clears throat> excuse me was someone who has a superficial squamous cell carcinoma of the skin okay now squamous cell carcinomas people don't typically die of these but they can start to get on the move and they can become a bit necrotic and create secondary infections and over time metastasize and cause problems but Ultimately, we aren't afraid of those types of cancers. However, they're a clue. They're a clue of an imbalance in the system. And as I was telling you and sharing with the other doctor on that call, you know, squamous cell is an example of a type of cancer that is very fueled, or is very much a viral process. And again, as we were alluding to earlier, when you treat a squamous cell lung carcinoma or a rectal carcinoma or cervical carcinoma or skin carcinoma, with chemo and radiation, you are frankly going to upset the, the immune system so much more that that viral pattern will simply pick up momentum and really, you know, go wonkers. And that's what we see often in all those cancer types I just described. They have very aggressive recurrence and progression rates because they're not being treated properly. They're not being looked at and assessed properly. And um, that's, that's a big one. Yeah, it's interesting too, the patient that we were consulting with was a longtime follower of mine and uh, was living an extraordinarily healthy lifestyle. So it was a surprise to her that she came down with, <clears throat> came down with this diagnosis. So, you know, the, it's always, from my perspective, useful to take a, a problem or a complication in life as a, a really, a, you know, to embrace it as a, something really great and take a paranoic <laughs> effect because you know it's good for you, ultimately it's gonna change things, and in her case I think it will, because it's identifying uh, variables or factors in her life that are contributing, that contribute to this, and once they're addressed, it will not only treat that specific problem, but also help a lot of other pathways and variables that will prolong the life and uh, you know, make, make living a longer and healthier life possible. Absolutely, and you know, it's funny how many people have said to me, so, as we started at the beginning of the, of the conversation today about how many people said, well, I was healthy until I got cancer. <laughs> after I work with people for a while, suddenly they'll say, I'm healthier than I've ever been right. with cancer. Yeah. What a difference. What a total, total shift. Well, even, even in your own circumstance too, I'm sure you, I mean, being a naturopathic physician and going through the whole process, I mean, you pretty much all the NDs or students are committed to living a healthy lifestyle. It doesn't mean they're healthy, but they're committed to it. They just may not be understand the, what it takes to, to implement it for them personally. You know, and it's interesting, another, uh, an opportunity to, to speak to this is I have a lot of patients that are all very savvy, you know, you know, faithful Mercola followers and people very much like the client we just consulted on and they've done all the right stuff and they've mm -hmm. gone to you know, cancer centers in Mexico or Germany, and they've spent a fortune or maybe their life savings, 70, 80, $120,000. And I'll sit in front of them and I'll take that bird's eye view to their history, to their chronology, to their terrain, to their labs, especially if I have some old labs and, and new labs and information, and as well as adding in the new labs that need to come in. And we realize very quickly that they might have gone to the best doctor at the best clinic and had the best treatments, but they mm -hmm. weren't best choices for that person at that time. Mm -hmm. I see that over and over again. So I always encourage you like take a breath, dive deep into your train and really understand what's making it tick right now before you choose any intervention. And then you will likely not have to see me again, 
because you won't likely be that 70% recurrence rate that the American Cancer Society says all patients who've had this diagnosis will have 70% of the time, you know? And so that's the place where I'm trying to help people understand that just take a moment and reframe and get clear on what is specifically right for you. All right. So many, many people need this type of service. So if someone watching this uh, personally would benefit from it or has a relative that would or friend or loved one, how do they engage your services or have, have their clinician engage your services more specifically? Well, it's very simple, actually. You just go to my website, drnasha.com, D-R-N-A-S-H-A.com. Scroll all the way through the bottom if you don't want to read a little bit of, of the background of who I am and what I do. But when you get to the bottom, you'll see a handy dandy section that's just like a patient resource section that has lots of great free tools. In fact, when you're on the website for a few minutes, a freebie pops up on the five steps of what to do when you're diagnosed with cancer, whether that's a first time or a second or a third round. Please download that. Please read it. Please share it. It gives a lot of the information that we just shared on this discussion today. Um, the next piece, though, is if you do find that this resonates with you, whether you're a clinician or a patient or a loved one of a patient going through this, go to the doctor section. There's a doctor resource, and it's literally, um, doctors can just do this online to sign up for a consultation with me. It breaks down exactly what's required, those five labs we discussed, um, any other relevant data, testing, imaging, anything. I, I look at it all, the more the merrier, right? And also um, requesting the patient to basically create a chronology, significant events of their life that led to that diagnosis or why their physician might be consulting with me. And even another additional piece is they could take the, the little um, uh, questionnaire, the 10-part questionnaire at the front of my book. So if the patient already has their own understanding of what might be the priority in their terrain of what's, you know, where to focus first. So that is something else that kind of elucidates for them before they even have the follow-up conversation with their physician of what we discussed. The patient probably already has a good idea of what's out of sync for them and where they need to begin. But that is something that I'm having uh, an amazing uh, um, ability to connect with so many physicians worldwide to watch this change, not just the patients they're working with directly, but to watch it impact their entire practice. Because this conversation we have um, is not just specific to that patient. I mean, it is, but it's going to apply like suddenly they realize, well, I've got six people with a similar pattern. You know, it starts to play out for the doctor to understand they need to be thinking of every single one of their patients in this way. And then the, the doctor goes back to the patient and basically reports what we taught and hopefully, knock on wood, and the feedback I'm getting is they are following through with the types of testing and recommendations that we cover in that um, consultation. So if they're not following through or for whatever reason their current or existing clinician or consultant uh, refuses to consider this as an option, do you have an opportunity for a patient to go to your site and ask for help in finding a local physician to them that you know would be receptive to this approach? Absolutely. We absolutely do. And hopefully by year's end, I have a four-month um, physician intensive training getting ready to start up of basically more like a mentorship of people that I have already been doing this process with, a few doctors that have worked with me very closely over several years that want to take this further and want to basically become 
a resource for patients where they can be available to them virtually. So that is something that is coming together and we're already uh, happy to make some recommendations if someone does have a doctor who's resistant to having this consult, there are definitely some folks that already work virtually that we can connect you with in order to have this consultation on your behalf. Well, that's absolutely terrific and because if it didn't exist, it certainly needed to. So yeah. uh, I want to thank you for creating this resource uh, and really providing a rational strategy as an alternative to what this devastating diagnosis could be. And, the, and as a result of the diagnosis, many people rush into a form of treatment with prematurely without the wisdom and, and wind up generating loads of expenses and harming those, more importantly. I mean, the finances can be recovered typically, but your health cannot be. So even if you don't do anything with your consultation, it's crazy not to get it first. It's relatively inexpensive, and at least you have a, a firm base understanding of how it's going to work. And you've given us the tools or the markers to identify and follow whatever program you follow to see if it's going to work. So, you know, I, I think it's a great strategy and I think it's uh, somewhat irrational and perhaps foolish not to integrate it into whatever program you choose. It's certainly wise to, to put it up into the consideration. So I, I thank you for making it available everyone and all the work that you do that you've done and will be doing. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. It's, um, it's, it's interesting to make this change because I loved working one-on-one -on -one with clients, but I know it's not sustainable and I know more and more people are needing this help. And so I'm, I'm having, uh, so, you know, this is relatively new to me to be really focusing entirely on the physician. And I have to say, I am really pleased to see the receptivity. Like I said, some of the conversations will start out a bit like, hmm, you know, the person on the other end of the phone, by the end of the hour, they're basically... Like, can I do this for other patients? Can I do this for myself? Can I do that? You know, and so it's, it's so gratifying to see people waking up and realizing I'm not a charlatan. You know, I'm not getting anything. I'm having a conversation with your doctor for an hour on your behalf after looking through your records. You know, there's, I'm not getting paid to like do your treatment. So it's a very much a conversation of helping reframe yeah. the thinking and the approach that we take in medicine and in oncology in particular. And it's- yeah. That, that's, a, that's a good point that you, you've identified that you don't have a conflict of interest, unlike most oncologists, because as my understanding, and we didn't touch on this, but I think it needs to be mentioned, that it is the only specialty in medicine that is legally allowed to sell their therapy. And their therapy is, without any question or doubt, literally the most expensive therapies in medicine, typically costing six and sometimes even seven figures. And they get a significant percentage of that. So talk about conflict of interest. I mean, mm -hmm. their incentive is to, to sell you an expensive uh, therapy because they're going to financially benefit from it. Now, it may be subconscious, but it doesn't matter. It's still there. It is there. And you've got to know that going into this, that the oncologist is financially benefiting from chemotherapy, which is very expensive. Or simply, because I've had some really nice conversations with a lot of oncologists, they are so boxed in on what they can and cannot do and say. I mean, truly, they are imprisoned by their medical system in many cases of some of the folks I've talked to, that I see them get this glimmer of hope and understanding and awareness. And I've seen a few of them really go to bat for and advocate for their patients and get certain testing done and, and uh, lower doses of their treatments done. And it's been incredible to
to witness that they are making ripples within their own profession. Well, I'm glad to see you've catalyzed that change because we certainly need it. And uh, more importantly, and I'm sure you've identified who these oncologists are. So that's another benefit of consulting with you because you know who these open-minded, truly well-intentioned clinicians are who have been somehow been able to isolate themselves from the obvious conflict of interest and are able to provide the best therapy for, for that patient. So you know who the winners are and it's great. That's a benefit you get from consulting with you. So. Uh, it's uh, to me, it's a win-win situation. Even if it's a fly, I mean, they may not be in your local community, but or tr drive a few hours. I mean, your life's at stake here. For Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Most people will have to travel outside of their communities at least initially to establish that that first contact in some situations. But for how things are right now in the world, that's a must to have, especially if you're a stage three or four patient or a patient who's had a recurrence or multiple failed responses to therapies. You must start to get out of that sandbox and venture into a new one. Okay, and the name of your book again, so people can pick that up too. Yeah, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, which is co-authored with my colleague and um, amazing, you've met um, Jess Kelly, Higgins Kelly as well, um, mm -hmm. but she is also just a, a fun side there. Jess also just got accredited for the first and only postgraduate level certification in cancer nutrition. Um, out there. So it's like a postgraduate certification for uh, clinicians and nutritionists, certified nutritionists, to get a focused oncology nutrition training because that is another area that is sorely lacking. So really training into that population okay. metabolic approaches, which is key. We also have a book coming out next year on very specific uh, diets, dietary therapeutic interventions for very particular um, oncology situations, and also a book next year on mistletoe that will be coming out. I know we didn't get to talk much about it, but there's a lot of interesting things when we look at vetted therapies that can be very supportive for this patient population. I just want your folks to be hearing these ideas, um, let them bubbling in their brains when they hear and see them in the next year or so they'll be ready to, to learn more. Thank you so much for taking some time with us and really enlightening us in some, some of the foundational principles and some incredible tips that each and every one of us can benefit from because it's, it's a challenge that uh, is a modern day challenge that we're virtually all exposed to in some way, shape or form. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure.